This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Uh, hello, and welcome to Breathe Easy, brought to you by the ATS. My name is Pat Lyons. I'm a clinician investigator and assistant professor at Oregon Health and Science University. I'm joined today by Dr. Lakshmi Santos, associate professor of medicine at UCSF in California. Thanks so much, Pat, and Breathe Easy for having me today. This is going to be a really fun chat. We're looking forward to having you and really excited about the directions this will go. Thanks for joining us. Uh, let's get started. So we're here to discuss the ICU pause initiative, which may be familiar to some listeners, but new to others. Can you introduce us to this work? Maybe let's start with the problem to be solved. That sounds great. And this is a very meta and fun podcast because Pat, Dr. Lyons has been one of my most amazing collaborators and co-conspirators throughout all of this. How it all started was actually when we were fellows back in the day, many years ago, we were interested in how there's a lot of attention been paid to transitions of care, say, from day to night or from discharge to outpatient. But we noticed that that same attention wasn't exactly being paid to patients when they're transferring out of the ICU to the ward. When we looked at the literature, we found out that there wasn't a lot of data published on these issues. And more interestingly, when we were fellows at different medical institutions, we found out that our institutions, our medical centers had vastly different processes for how we even handled the ICU to ward transfer. So the first step that we did was kind of characterize how heterogeneous that process was and how often we as medicine doctors felt like things were often lost through the cracks for people who are receiving transfers from the ICU to the ward. And then when we're in the ICU, you know, I just came off service yesterday. We often feel like the patients who are ready for transfer are a quick out of sight, out of mind. But you realize that that's actually a particularly vulnerable time for patients. Even though they're, quote, better, they're no longer critically ill, they're still entering a situation when they're going to be transitioning to a whole new team of doctors and clinicians, a whole new team of nurses. There's going to be an abrupt reduction in monitoring. They're going to go from an A-line, a central line, all that, to maybe Q4 hour vitals. And importantly, in some cases, there's still some diagnostic uncertainty. Like I mentioned, I just got off service yesterday and we had a situation that's relatable to many of you all where a patient was altered. We brought him into the ICU for close monitoring. He was protecting his airway throughout. We scanned him, we did CT, we did MRI, we got better access, we monitored him closely. And at the time of transfer out, there still wasn't a slam dunk diagnosis. Our leading diagnosis was kind of hypoactive delirium in a person who had a lot of delirium risk factors. And we certainly excluded life-threatening things like stroke, seizure, et cetera. But there was definitely still some diagnostic uncertainty. And so the ICU pause was created really as a structured communication tool. It was created for residents by residents to more systematically hand off and assist with that handoff from ICU to ward in a systematic, structured way. And very happy to chat with you more about that throughout the podcast today. Oh, that's fantastic. Thanks for sharing all of that. I think that's exactly right. Um, it's interesting reflecting on um, when we first started having these conversations a few years ago, um, you know, the, the horror stories were, were uh, universal, right? I mean, everybody we spoke to said, uh, this happened at my institution. It's analogous to this. It's analogous to that. I think this is kind of a, a lived experience that many trainees who work in and around the ICU have, have noticed. Uh, and certainly, you know, patients have noticed it as well, and their families have. Um, but you're right. Like, what was really interesting is even though the sort of the negative uh, anecdotes were prominent, 
the the hyperlocality or the idiosyncrasies of like each hospital's processes were really interesting and um, sort of spoke to us about the need to you know find common ground and figure out what sorts of solutions work for everybody and what doesn't. Um, so I, I thanks for summarizing all that. I think that's exactly right. Um, I'm thinking a little bit more about the idea of communication failures and and how they pertain not just to patients that are leaving the ICU, but to sort of these questions of like residual undiagnosed things or diagnostic uncertainty. Why do communication failures occur? This is a great question. I think one of the things that we see at multiple care transitions, right? Again, inpatient to outpatient, OR to ICU, ICU to ward, is that there is this information drop-off inherently in transitions of care. And when you're layering on top of that, switching teams, switching teams of clinicians, transitioning to different contexts, and transitioning to perhaps even how you mentally conceptualize or have a mental framework for that patient in that different context, it's just ripe for communication failure. And again, it's no one's fault. It's really a systemic issue. And systemic issues that are no individual's fault really require systemic solutions. And we've seen through the checklistification of quality improvement, whether you're in the OR or whether you're doing a procedure, just like that, a communication kind of checklist can be helpful in preventing systemic communication failures. And so the ICU pause is really analogous to a checklist for ensuring safe communication when we know clinicians are under a high stress, high cognitive load environment. They're busy, they're transitioning people out. And so the ICU pause tool really forces clinicians to just take that brief moment of a diagnostic pause to just look at all the information we have and relate it concisely, consistently, and effectively to the next team. So you're saying, hey, we're all really busy. We're going to take a quick pause. I'm going to tell you everything I know. And I'm going to also be transparent about what I don't know with this structured communication framework. And we're going to do it the same way every single time utilizing this communication checklist. That's awesome. I think this is such a cool project. And it's like you read my mind. I was actually going to transition us next to say, that brings us to ICU pause. So we have this program and uh, we'll hear a lot about it in our conversation today. Um, can we just start by talking about the acronym? Uh, what does it mean? What does it stand for? It's a great question. So a lot of people have heard of IPASS, which is the illness severity, patient characteristics, action item, situational awareness, and summary or to-dos. That was initially developed by Dr. Starmer and colleagues, a pediatrician, for day to night handoffs. And we first looked at, could we just adapt that to ICU? And we realized that our ICU patients, you know, they're a mega patient, they're a patient on steroids, and that that framework might not be the most translatable for this ICU to ward transition. So again, this is a resident framework created for residents by residents, but really applicable to all clinicians practicing in the ICU and general medicine space. Here's what it stands for. Let me break it down. The I really is kind of like your chief complaint. I is for ICU admission reason. C is really for code status, but not just full code or DNR, DNI, which is often easily pulled from your electronic medical record, but it's a place to list upfront the code status and who is the point of contact. I often found myself, again, just recently in the ICU, rummaging through the different tabs to say, where is the daughter's phone number exactly? What's the best phone number? Which daughter? So the C is for code status and contact. 
putting it right up front because that is kind of one of the most important things you want to know when your patient is not doing well or if they're doing well and you want a daily family update. The U is for uncertainty. This is our diagnostic pause where we say, we think the working diagnosis is ICU delirium, but we also consider this, this, and this. And this is an area of marked uncertainty. Or in contrast, we could say, we think this is a straightforward case of COVID pneumonia. He's better now. There's low uncertainty here, slam dunk, basic COVID admission. So that's what the U is for, uncertainty, the diagnostic pause. P is for your pending tests at transfer. So we often know when you know that ANA is still cooking or the cytology from the bronchoscopy is still cooking. Calling those pending tests out specifically is really helpful for the accepting team. So they'll know what to follow up on, what's not obvious. The A is for active consultants. And that can include you know, ID following along, but also PT, OT, things like that. The nice thing, and I hope we'll get a chance to talk about this, is that some different institutions who have already implemented it have done some really cool modifications to places like this, the A for active consultants based on their local context. Shout out to Yale University, for example. They include was a referral place to a post-ICU clinic in this section of the ICU pause, which is a really nice best practice that we might disseminate to other sites that have post-ICU clinics. So that's, that's really the A cool. for active consultants, right? It's, it's an amazing yeah, idea. That's really like, cool. Why didn't we that. think of that? <laughs> I love it. Um, <laughs> The, the U, the second U, is really for unprescribing. And what that means is basically just calling out the pertinent high-risk meds. Oftentimes, your electronic medical record will spit out a giant medication list that usually might still say things like propofol and norepinephrine, even if they've been inactive for days. So the, a, the U for unprescribing just helps you call out the high-risk meds to say, hey, here's what anticoagulation they're on. Here's the antibiotics that we're on. Here's the prednisone taper that you actually have to taper on. Here are the changes to the home meds that we held. We held their entire goal-directed medical therapy for heart failure because they were so unstable. We have to resume that quickly. So it's a chance for you to call out those high-risk meds in a way that's systematic so you're not just eyes glazing over a giant med list. The S is for your classic summary and to-dos. So that's the place where you can say, hypoactive delirium, we did this. The to-do is follow-up final read of your MRI. Chronic kidney disease, we did this. The to-do is follow-up renal recommendations. And then the E is your pertinent physical exam at the time of transfer, including things like your lines, drains, whether it was a difficult airway, things like that. So the E is the nice, concise, pertinent physical exam. This also makes it it depends on the institution. Some institutions have used it as a billable progress note because you see you have enough information here, your data review, your physical exam to make it a billable progress note. And in critical care, we often do time-based billing anyways. And in many institutions, because of flow, like in my institution where you might wait for a TCU bed for a little longer than you'd like because the hospital is always full, um, sometimes it might be a separate note in addition to the progress note. So it really works either way. So that's ICU pause, just a brief review. I, admission reason, I see admission reason, C, code status, U, uncertainty pause, P, pending test at the time of transfer, A, active consultants, U, unprescribing, S, summary and to-dos, and E, pertinent physical exam. That was an outstanding and comprehensive summary. Thank you, Lakshmi. I love it. Um, you know, it, it strikes me that, that as you're describing this, um, a tool like this is doing a lot of things simultaneously, right? It's a cognitive reservoir. 
It's a communication facilitator. It's also a behavioral nudge, right? This is this is actually prompting people to think about the pause, to think about the deprescribing, and um, it's it's kind of nice that there's actually multiple potential mechanisms of action, which I think is very relevant when there are multiple potential mechanisms of failure in these transfers. Um, and so I think it, it sort of is a nice way to to put additional protections into place for these high risk patients. I loved how you framed that. It is so true, so well said, Pat. As always, the behavioral nudge component of it is so true because often for these types of quality improvement or implementation science measures, the tail is really wagging the dog. That if you create the system, that actually helps people pay attention to things that we might have neglected in our the busyness and the cognitive load of the day. It helps you take that pause to say, oh yeah, we did hold a lot of the home meds. Let's reassess that. Or, oh yeah, this this ANA is still cooking and that's actually an important one to follow up on. So it's a behavioral nudge, it's a cognitive tool, it's a checklist all rolled into one. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. Um, so we have the tool. Um, what is this? What does the existence of ICU pause mean in practice? How can somebody use this in the real world? Thank you for asking. So this is where I have to express my immense gratitude to ATS as well as CMSS, the Council for Medical Subspecialty Societies, and the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, who have really helped take this project idea from couple of institutions doing pilot testing to really a nationwide ATS-wide push. So ATS, we were fortunate as part of the ATS to receive this grant from CMSS and the Moore Foundation to actually focus on the multi-site implementation nationally. And right now we are live at 16 sites around the country with an additional 13 sites in process. That is incredible for a relatively new tool. The other cool thing that I appreciate ATS really partnering and investing in this concept is that ATS, through this grant funding, has created essentially an implementation-ready toolkit. So if you're listening right now and you're like, that sounds great, let's try this at our institution, get in touch with Lauren and I, and we'll point you to the ATS ICU pause implementation toolkit. The toolkit has really everything you need. It has posters, it has flyers, it has the actual IC pause dot phrase that you can cut and paste. It has an informational video to summarize what everything is that you can share and email to your faculty or your fellows or your residents or your advanced practice practitioners. It has um, data on how we've looked at this across different medical centers. It has links to the primary literature. So we have that all done on the ATS LMS system, the learning management system, where it's all in one place for easy reference. And then if you're interested in implementing at your institution, I do a quick one-on-one call with the site to basically assess some pre-implementation barriers facilitators. Because I've talked to 42 different sites nationwide, I have a good sense of what works well and what advice I can give you to make sure this is successful. All of our sites that have implemented are still going. This is a sustainable intervention. And it's not a heavy lift. We published a paper on pre-implementation barriers and facilitators, and we are submitting a paper soon on how how we compare that to actual barriers and implementation. And we found that most people found that it was a much easier lift than they expected, right? This is not me asking you to change all your central line kits. In one way, it's easier because it's, quote, free. It's just a dot phrase. But we also know that changing communication 
is changing culture. And that's not always easy. And what it takes is an interested site champion. So if you're listening to this and you want to get involved and implement this at your site, it's not that hard. We will help you through it. And thanks to ATS, we have a lot of resources to help you implement successfully. That's an amazing amount of support. Yes, a lot to be thankful for here, for sure. Uh, so Lakshmi, you said you had 42 conversations with different sites. And so getting a sense of what works and what doesn't, um, which I think is really, really uh, essential here. Can you talk through a little bit about like what is common? So what common things work? What is consistent across sites versus what things are needing to be adaptable or more malleable? How do you differentiate those? What really stands out to you? This is a great question, and we addressed this question in our paper in Diagnosis. The first author is actually a resident, Dr. Ella Cornell. And what we did was we systematically looked across sites at these conversations and said, what were the common themes that came up? What were people concerned about? And that way, again, we can tailor our advice and customize our advice. I think the most, the thing that people were most concerned about was that factor, culture change. People said, Technologically, it's not a big lift. It's a dot phrase or it's a new note template. We can talk to our electronic health record, EHR, IT folks and help them implement this, no problem. But I'm worried about having people who have done something the same way for two years, two months, two decades, suddenly changing their practice to implement something. And so when you do that, culture change takes a couple of things, a couple of ingredients for success. And again, the implementation science world is very acquainted with this. The key ingredients or the recipe for success that I've noticed as the common themes are really a, a committed champion who believes in the cause, patience, time, and repeated kind of micro-education. The other thing is getting stakeholder buy-in from a diverse variety of stakeholders, even though, again, it's a relatively small change, it's just a template, it's just a checklist, making sure that everyone has buy-in is on the same page, especially key stakeholders. And so when I advise people on how to implement, I say, hey, talk to your MICU director, talk to your residency program or your fellowship program if you're at a teaching institution, talk to your APP group, be inclusive, start with what is in your locus of control. If you are attending in the MICU or if you're working in the MICU, let's start with MICU, start small. And we can always disseminate later, but start small with what is within your control. You mentioned this question about adaptation and customization. What have different sites done? That has been really fascinating for me to look at how different sites have adapted the tool. And we're in the process of writing that up too. And so what we've seen is that some people are adding things based on what is helpful with their local context. I mentioned the Yale example with a post-ICU clinic. There's another site that I talked to where they're predominantly a surgical ICU, a SICU. And so they wanted right up front in the eye for ICU admission reason, they wanted an automatic mandatory text field for what was the surgery and who was the surgery attendant. Because again, when that patient is not doing well, you want to know who is the surgeon, what post-op day are they on? And they wanted that information right up front. And I said, sure, that's a great idea. Let's customize that. By and large, people are using the template as is, with those minor modifications, there was another site that modified by saying, was social work consulted prior to discharge? Because that had implications for their case management and social work flow. So all of these little modifications that I've seen work well, overlaid on the same tool in the same order. And we encourage local modifications. 
and we want to collate all those local modifications into best practices for sites to consider. That's fantastic. Thank you for talking us through all of that. Um, <clears throat> the other thing that comes to mind is you're talking about kind of building this toolkit over time and having it evolve and, and kind of grow with multiple different directions that it can go. Uh, is is what to measure as we go about this. Um, and it, this is always really, really challenging for emerging projects as you try to bridge the gap between, you know, the initial clinician perceptions or, or early implementation outcomes, right? Did we adopt it? Is it acceptable? Do people seem to like it and so forth? And then actually getting to more quantitative outcomes, right? So process measures, patient outcomes. Um, can you share advice for researchers who are facing similar problems or sort of trying to build their, their own conceptual framework of a, a potential project? This is an area where I have learned so much from you, Pat, as an implementation scientist, a healthcare delivery scientist, an informaticist, um, and a clin clinician investigator. I think that this is a really cool area where it really lies at the intersection of medical education, which is my sphere, quality improvement, and implementation science. And this project is kind of at the nexus of those three fields of study. And so, there are places where you might think about sort of medical education type merit me measures, such as learner and faculty satisfaction, which we often say is sort of the lowest rung on the totem pole when you look at assessing a curricular intervention. Then we kind of zoom out a little bit and we look at implementation science metrics, like what is the, what is the percent adaptation of this tool? What is the sort of like penetrance of the intervention? How many sites are actually using this? We're looking at things like who is using it, how have they adapted it, how. We're looking at learner outcomes, learner reported outcomes, as well as faculty reported outcomes. We're looking at things like people who were interested, but they didn't follow up. Why? What were the barriers? Kind of what was that drop off rate? What was the attrition rate? We were expecting to find some sites that didn't sustain, for example, that had a drop off. We actually haven't seen that yet, which I think speaks to how this is a sustainable information, um, sustainable intervention. But that was something that we were kind of expecting to look for, again, knowing the implementation science literature. Our big dream, were we to be able to get more funding and clone ourselves, is to look at, of course, the hard patient outcomes, such as ICU readmissions, mortality, length of stay at a national level, looking at control sites who have not implemented this yet and the sites who have implemented that. We're in process of trying to figure out how we could get those data. And as you all know well, the multi-site IRB doesn't make these investigations necessarily easy, nor are institutions necessarily the most forthcoming about those kind of data measures. But we're looking into getting those big data outcome measures as well. So we're starting small with looking at learner and faculty satisfaction, then we're zooming out to more implementation science metrics. And our next phase is absolutely looking at the patient level outcomes in terms of data, marrying these three fields, again, of medical education, quality improvement, and implementation science. That is tremendous. I think that's the, the right approach to take. And I, I love the way you walked everybody through the, the steps of the way, moving from those kind of initial perception-based outcomes and then growing the list of things to measure in multiple directions at the same time, right? That keeps your work moving forward. I think it keeps your, your conversations very um, sort of open and engaging. You really were bringing 
lots of different thought leaders at your site together rapidly, right? Because everybody has a stake in this. Everybody's interested in this. And that, that I think really could help quite a bit. Speaking uh, of thought me... leaders, <clears throat> speaking of thought leaders, I think another really cool thing that the ATS has put out through this process, uh, through this project and process through the grant funding is that we actually have a CME accredited module on the ATS LMS that really is about transitions of care, diagnostic error, transitions of care, and also considering implicit bias and health equity at transitions of care. We interviewed the amazing Dr. Pat Lyons, who sits before us, in addition to other thought leaders in the field of these areas of implementation science, diagnostic error, um, everyone from Dr. Megan Lanefall, Dr. Vinny Arora, Dr. Hardeep Singh, Dr. Anand Iyer. This is an amazing module. I have watched it and listened to it multiple times because every single word that these experts and thought leaders are saying is gold, is so thought provoking. And it's a short and sweet module that I definitely recommend you check out. Now, I learned a lot participating in it. The conversations that we all had together and asynchronously were, were really, really wonderful. So Lakshmi, a minute ago, you mentioned um, the, the nuances of some of the different sites who have implemented and are implementing ICU pause. Um, and I get the sense that they're predominantly academic medical centers right now. Can you talk about how this is going to grow in directions beyond sort of a medicine residency focused or a, a GME focused project? So how will it grow to the community? How will it grow to hospitalists? How will it grow in other directions? Really good question. I think one of the things that we've been heartened by is the interest and the diversity in the variety of sites that we're implementing at and that we're in the process of implementation of. One of the sites who's who's gone live, for example, is one of the Kaiser sites. You know, Kaiser is a totally different model than, say, Oregon Health Sciences University, and they run their unit really differently and seeing how this can be adapted at a Kaiser, not just for academic medical centers. A bunch of our sites that are in the process of implementation are not, there are non-trainees there. There's, for example, attending only services or APP only services, and the concepts still are very applicable and translatable. Fascinatingly, a veterinarian once reached out to me after reading about our tool, saying that these transitions of care occur in veterinary ICUs. That conversation truly blew my mind. Um, OBGYN doctors have reached out to me thinking about, could this be modified to think about people transitioning from labor and delivery ward to postpartum? So I think that the cool thing is we have academic sites, certainly that's where we had started as a, as a resident created tool, but we're seeing that these concepts are generalizable to scenarios where there are not trainees, where there's clinicians practicing who find the same benefit. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that we're we're transitioning to the animal world yet, but I was so interested to learn that even that there's other transitions of care outside of the specialty of medicine or critical care where these concepts are definitely applicable. I'm, I love it. I'm racking my brain right now trying to come up with an animal specific acronym modification here. And I, I've got nothing off the top of my head, um, but we can talk offline later. This all sounds really, really cool. We're excited to have a lot of sites already engaged and getting engaged. Uh, how can you get involved if you're a new site, if you're potentially a new site, I should say? Thanks for asking. If you'd like to join as a site, definitely email me, lakshmi.santosh at ucsf.edu. In the show notes for this episode, 
where you find us. We'll have a link to the website where you can check us out, both our landing page as well as the specific modules, the videos, the whole implementation toolkit. It's all one-stop shopping. If you click on the website, that's right in the show notes, right beneath this, where you got this audio. Once again, thank you to the ATS, CMSS, and the Moore Foundation for funding the expansion of this important work. Thank you to you, Pat, for your insightful questions. And again, your amazing mentorship, collaboration, awesome, thought-provoking questions, being in the trenches with me from day one on this project. It's been such a fun journey working with you. And thank you all for listening. And contact us if you want to get involved. It's been a really fun journey. I could not agree more. This episode was brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, rate, review, or subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Thanks for listening.